Good evening, and welcome back to the Professor Penn Podcast, episode number 70. David Penn here, welcoming you. Tonight we're going to talk about war and trade, and there's so much going on. I'm not in a terrible mood this morning. I'm recording this at 7.15 a.m. for your enjoyment tonight at 7.30 p.m. We're about 12 hours from recording to premiere, and I woke up today, I'm reading the news, and the news is worse and worse, and I'm trying to bastion myself by being accepting, uh, trying to maintain my sense of humor. Uh, of course, we don't know what the outcome is. Uh, I was talking at home, and I get this thing all the time. Well, you're just too negative about what's going to happen because you're Jewish. You know, you have a bad attitude. And I say, do you read the newspapers? Well, the newspapers are just entertainment. They're selling soap. You know, there's a lot of truth in that. And we have this giant equation working, the sum of all human will is at play here because we have free will. That's the gift. That's what makes us human beings. We have free will. And all of our wills are summed up. You know, we got a group out there that's in the weapons business. Boy, their their will is well expressed, right? And we got this group of American patriots that are fighting and struggling to change the politics of the country. And we've got this great group of people in the middle that want to get up in the morning and go to work and not be bothered. And, you know, that's not really all bad. Everything has a yin and yang. On the one hand, this group is not engaged, and they're living in a dream world. But on the other hand, their dream world is voting for a future. So I try not to be judgmental. I want to look at both sides of every issue. And it was so interesting. Um, I've got a, I've got a uh, viewer, listener, who uh, comes to me on Getter, and he is extraordinarily critical of my coverage of the war in the Middle East. And his critique is that I'm, you know, pro-Palestinian and anti-Jewish. And I keep saying to this gentleman, could be a woman, I, I think it's a gentleman, I, we haven't met, I keep saying, hey, you know, the history is the history. And, uh, I'm trying to recount the history from many different perspectives. We're in a situation here where everybody that's involved sucks. So the question is, what do we do here in America? And how do we, how do we deal with this? Well, there's one way. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the light and the dark. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating me in your image. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me an American. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me free. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for healing the blind. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for feeding the people. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for releasing the bound. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. 
Thank you for raising up the downtrodden. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the heavens and earth. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for providing for all my needs. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for directing my path. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for our American courage. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for crowning America with glory. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for restoring strength to the weary. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for letting me serve you. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for revealing yourself to the people. You know, we pray, I pray, believing that I've received. And I've had a life. This is really, I'm not bragging, okay? This is, this is kind of horrifying. I mean, Professor Penn has been in some tight spots, tight ones. And when I say tight spots, I mean life on the line. And as they say, there are no atheists in the foxhole. And I have been in some spots in my life where all the chips are up on the bar. And I have found those periods of time, in hindsight, to be the most uplifting because I learned the most and I felt the love of God in my life and the presence of God in my life in hindsight. At the time, because my faith is not complete, I had anxiety. I was struggling to learn how to pray. And I'm still working on making my faith complete because, as it says, if I had the faith of a mustard seed, I could cast a mountain into the sea. So I have some work to do because I think there's, there's something to this. You know, there's a metaphor, and then there's just actually how are we as the American people going to get out of the spot we find ourselves in? And where are we? Well, I looked at the debt clock this morning. We're $34 trillion in debt. Japan, I looked at Japan's debt. Japan's debt is twice their gross domestic product. Now, in the history of the world, the history of the world, a sovereign debt has never been repaid when it exceeds 100% of GDP. So we are in what's called uncharted territory. Uh, one might think that collapse is the goal of our elites. Because when we think about inflation and taxation, it's a transferring of human energy from one group of people to another. What the government does, unfortunately, is take resources from one group and redistribute it to another group. That's what it does. It takes and it gives. It takes away, creating dependency in those who lose, and it gives, creating dependency in those that receive. It eliminates, the government is intending to eliminate self-governance, self-sufficiency, independence, faith, 
all of the traditional, when I say traditional, going back hundreds of thousands of years, all of the characteristics that humans developed in the process of social and biological evolution to maintain their well-being and to extend their lives, to live. We're handing those capacities and capabilities to a government that we would like to trust, but clearly with $34 trillion in debt, and we're suddenly in two wars, and when I say we, because we, we the people are funding these wars, we the people are paying for the weapons that are being used in these wars, and the dirty, dark little secret is there's lots of American citizens that are engaged in these wars as mercenaries, or actually boots on the ground of the American military. So when I look at this and I think to myself, well, this is a complicated mess. So when I pray, I'm really praying with you. I'm praying for myself. I really want to live. I love living. I love being on this path, this path of truth-seeking media, where we're working together to get a closer vision of what's going on. And when I get negative feedback from Sphinx Chat, for example. You know, I listen, I read it, I respond to it. We're arguing. It's okay. As long as people argue with me and don't start threatening me, the only time I cut off the dialogue is when people threaten me and I come back to them and say, hey, let's talk about it. And if I can talk them out of it, I'll continue to engage with them. But when they're just, you know, threatening me, what what's the point of continuing? But if the dialogue is within a wide range of, I have a wide range of what's acceptable. I like the dialogue. I don't want to suppress the dialogue. I want us to talk and strive as a community because what we're doing as truth-seeking media is trying to establish political action. Free People Radio is about political action. So I want to thank Free People Radio for creating this platform. I want to remind everybody that Free People Radio depends on your support, that you can go to freepeopleradio.com. You can subscribe. You can support. You can help us stay here on air. I was watching Royce yesterday. He was talking about self-producing to keep costs down. Hey, we're doing everything to keep our costs down. We're not about getting rich. We're not about, you know, serving corporate masters. As some of you who follow Free People Radio have seen, how others that we know of without mentioning names because there's no reason to get personal are really involved in this serving other interests. The interest that we serve in Free People Radio is this community and seeking the truth together. And that's what we're about. We need your help, and thank you for supporting us. And precinctstrategy.com because we're a political action community. What we're asking for is for people to please as you get steeped in this truth-seeking and you give over to the effort to maintain the United States of America as a country that protects human freedom and minority rights, for example, or protects the unalienable rights granted to us by a creator, if these ideas are motivating, which they certainly are for me, I'm just asking for 24 hours a year 
for every American citizen to go become delegates to the political parties, both Democrat and Republican. Now, if you go to Dan Schultz's website, precinctstrategy.com, Dan has a complete tutorial on how to get involved. Now, it's aimed at the Republican Party, but I'm going to be more expansive. There's only one party, uniparty. So it really doesn't matter what party you go into if you go into it with the idea of telling the truth or seeking the truth because we're living in an era where our politicians are totally full of There's a bleep. I'm going to write that one down. But they're just totally full of And we cannot advance as a people or as a country when our leadership lies to us as if we're dummies. So the first part of the process is for us to wake up and no longer be dummies because then it's harder for them to lie to us. We look at their lies and they're very obvious. And then we have to take 24 hours a year and become delegates to these parties where we have votes on who gets endorsed and then who runs to be a candidate. And we can vet these people out and get rid of the liars. Like in CD6, Minnesota, Representative Tom Emmer, Representative Emmer, start telling the truth or the people of CD6 are going to throw you out and you can get a job working in the tire business for me because you are a great salesman. But here at our tire business, we don't lie. I'm sorry, Representative Emmer. When you're selling tires for Professor Penn, you're going to have to tell the truth. There's no bullshit. We're going to have to get through that period in American history where lying comes so easily. We're going to have to start telling each other hard truths and seeking the truth together such that we can advance as a people. I was watching uh, Morning Joe this morning, and I do recommend people watch this. This is on MSNBC. This is the news program of the globalists. And they were assailing the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who has indicated that the funding for the Israel and the Ukraine wars will be supported by his speakership, but whatever money we designate for those wars must be offset by cuts in other areas. So the first bill coming up is a large multi-billion dollar funding bill to support Israel. And Speaker Johnson has said, well, that's okay. We're going to take the same amount of money that we give to Israel and we're going to take it away from the IRS. And I watched on um, Morning Joe, they ran their best people in there, Steve Ratner, another genius. And he had all of his charts and graphs. And he was saying, well, when you take money away from the IRS, you're really you know, making the deficit bigger because the IRS has all collected money. Well, let's just say if the only cut that Speaker Johnson recommends going forward is to the IRS, which is protecting the wealth of the wealthy, then Mr. Ratner is correct. The Republicans suck. But if they're starting with the IRS because it's emblematic of government harassment and intervention into the lives of American citizens— and we know American citizens steal. Let's stop stealing. Let's stop lying. And let's stop having the government invading the lives of the American people. 
let's make the government smaller. So they started with something very emblematic and symbolic of government control of the people. If they stop there and they don't go on to the next program and the next program to reduce the spending, then they really truly do suck, and I agree with Steve Ratner. But if this is just the start, because, of course, these wars are going to take a lot of money, so there's a lot of domestic spending that's going to have to get cut. Let's cut it. Because why? $34 trillion in debt. The clock is ticking. We're going to lose our currency. And when we lose our currency, we're going to lose everything. We're going to lose the wealth of the country. We're going to lose our freedom. And I have to say, I think that's the goal. Because I can think of no other reason why I, as an American citizen, would be $34 trillion in debt. I got a young man in here, uh, a training producer. He's 24 years old. He already owes three hundred grand to the U.S. government. He doesn't even know it. And we were talking about his college loans. I asked him if he was going to go to graduate school. He said, well, I'd like to, but first got to pay down my undergraduate debt. He's not even thinking about the 300 Gs that he owes because of what the boomers ran up on him. And that is really horrifying. And guess what? Half our debt matures over the next three years. That means if we balance the budget tomorrow, in three years, the debt would be cut in half. Wouldn't that be cool? Oh, nobody can even think this way. Oh, our economy is going to go to hell. People are going to be in the streets. Hey, the economy is going to hell. People are in the streets. The choice is proactivity or reactivity. And I'll leave it for you, the viewer and listener, to decide if you like proactivity or reactivity. We're in a very reactive kind of a government. The can gets keep getting kicked down the road. We're kicking that can all the time. How about a little proactivity? Why are we in a debt society? Why are we not in an equity society like the Chinese are? They're sitting on a ton of cash. But we, we the people, we're too broke to pay attention. We're too broke to pay attention. Too broke to pay attention. It's not good. Apocalypto. Let's talk about the apocalypse, the impending apocalypse, which everybody's putting on us. Let's pay, play this first piece from Turkey. The biggest show of support yet for Palestinians amid seething public anger. Turkey's president put the number of protesters in Istanbul at 1.5 million and offered his strongest rebuke yet of Israel's attacks on Gaza. Israel, you are an occupier. You are an organized gang. Israel is committing war crimes. The main culprit behind the massacre unfolding in Gaza is the West. Powerful words from the leader of a NATO country. But they echo what people here have been saying as more civilians die in Gaza. We are with our Palestinian brothers. We have come here so Palestinians know they are not alone. We are soldiers. As soon as we find the opportunity, we will be on the front lines, not at rallies. That call to action is echoed by some Turkish politicians. One provincial leader told Al Jazeera there needs to be a peacekeeping force from Muslim countries to save lives in Gaza. Another said Israel only understands the language of power, not words and resolutions. And a third criticized Muslim countries for failing to support Palestinians in the same way the U.S. has backed Israel. It wasn't only Turks on the street. 
foreigners living in Istanbul also joined the crowd. But just calling for an end to this violence. But we all wonder, how is it going to end? And which is going to be the leader who's actually going to shut an embassy and make a difference? Having these rallies feels great, but it's controlled dissent. Where do we go now? And there isn't a Gazan tonight going yay for flags in Istanbul. From Tehran to Amman, from Muscat to Kabul, public anger against Israel has been rising. More strong words from the Turkish president, but that's unlikely to have an impact on the sentiment in the streets of Turkey and other Muslim-majority countries where people are calling for not just rallies and condemnations, but actual actions that will help stop the violence. Sama bin Javed Al-Tazira, Istanbul. Well, you know, the uh, use by Professor Penn of Al Jazeera is criticized by some. It's a Qatari news source. It's slanted just like the New York Times is slanted. And I read the New York Times and I read Al Jazeera. I read Weon. I read the Washington Post. I read Zero Hedge. I watch MSNBC. And I watch War Room. And I watch Please Call Me Crazy. I'm trying to have as wide a lens as I can so that I can try to piece together some semblance, some approach to what's truthfully taking place in the world. There was a million and a half Turks at that rally. Now, I've been to Turkey many times. Anybody in the audience been to Turkey? Put it in a live chat. Maybe we got some Turkish people in a live chat. And I like Turkey, and I like Turkish people. Had a great time going there. I've been there many times. And I can tell stories. Well, you know, I got censored for telling stories by uh, my producer. Uh, he said, well, you can't tell all the, don't be, don't tell them everything. It's scary. But I actually had a chance to meet President Erdogan. And I didn't do it because, you know, it was not cleared with the U.S. State Department. And uh, when I was in Istanbul, you know, I used to see him driving around and a lot of fanfare over there with President Erdogan. He's quite a guy. Uh, Turkey has got some big problems. Its Inflation rate's over 100%. They're kind of the canary in the coal mine for where the United States of America is heading. They're a NATO member. I mean, please focus on this. They're in the NATO alliance. They're the second largest military in NATO. That would be after the United States of America. We arm, we the people arm the Turks. And Erdogan is a departure from the previous Turkish regimes. He's interested in Turkish pan-Islamist power. So he represents a very complicated challenge to our military, our NATO alliance, and to our politicians. They really don't know quite how to deal with them. Because if they cast him out, which many in our Congress do want to do, he's just going to go do his own thing, and they'll have no reins on this guy. So they keep trying to work with him. But he threatened Israel with war. He basically, not basically, he was very direct about it. Just said, hey, in the middle of the night, we're coming. And this sentiment is building up throughout the Arab world. And this is kind of apocalyptic in the sense that if the Turks and the Jordanians and the Egyptians and the Yemenis and the Iranians, if the Muslim world in total 
attack Israel, uh, Israel's going to be in big trouble. The United States will be involved, and the possibility of nuclear weapons being used is very high. Let's just say in the Ukraine, Putin did not take the bait. Well, now we got another group of people in there, and they're working at very tribal levels. They're working at ancient levels. Their brains are a little bit different in how they're formatted, maybe than you and me. Let's listen to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu talking about the Amalek. It's very interesting. Please. You must remember what Amalek has done to you, says our Holy Bible. And we do remember and we are fighting our brave troops and combatants who are now in Gaza or around Gaza and in all other regions in Israel are joining this chain of Jewish heroes, a chain that has started 3,000 years ago from Joshua ben Nun until the heroes of 1948, the Six-Day War, the 73 October War and all other wars in this country are hero troops. They have one supreme main goal to completely defeat the murderous enemy and to guarantee our existence in this country. We've always said never again. Never again is now. That's good. Thank you. So Benjamin Netanyahu is talking about a 3,000-year warrior tradition in the Holy Bible. And, uh, you know, the Professor Penn podcast has tried to make very clear, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more today, that the founding of Israel was not made on holy grounds. It was made on Marxist ground. Wrapping itself in the tradition of the Bible to justify the claim to the land but these people were not really believers. They were Zionists, which was a completely different uh, ideological framework. And since Netanyahu is mentioning, mentioning the Amalek in this 3,000-year tradition, because I know that most of us are not biblically steeped to know where these guys are coming from, what they're evoking in the people, even in the non-religious of Israel, which we're also going to get to today, how they're cuddling up with the right now, the left and the right, they're all together, because when faced by murderous marauders that are cutting the heads off of babies, hey, the uni party forms up real quick in Israel. I want to read the reference in the Bible that Netanyahu has made. It's uh, Samuel 15. It's long. I'm going to read it as entertainingly as I can. I know I watch in the live premieres, people go away when I start reading these Bible passages. Please stay with it because these passages are underlying the thinking of our leaders. We don't know that. I mean, hey, how many of us are thinking that our elected leaders are steeping themselves in apocalyptic verse? Let's know where they're coming from, what they're using on the people. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint, anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Helium, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone down to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, When then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Isn't this a great story? It's like a bedtime story, right? Only Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is referring to it. So let's get to the source material and figure out what he's telling the world. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, you did not become the head of the tribes of Israel. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. In other words, it's not you, buddy. God made you king. And he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? See what Netanyahu has done? He has wrapped this war in the cloth of utter and total destruction. Where have we heard this kind of stuff before? Well, right here for a starter. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder? In other words, why did you get rich doing this job? And do evil in the eyes of the Lord. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites 
and brought back Agog their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of which was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in the obeying of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. He's saying that the king of the Israelites, Saul, arrogantly rejected the Lord's direction, and that's like a kind of idolatry, raising up human intellect beyond service to the Lord. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as a king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command in your instructions. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. Now he's blaming the soldiers. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. So Samuel turned to leave. Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. Does not lie, tells the truth. For he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me a god, king of the Amalekites. A god came to him in chains, and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put a god to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gabi of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Well, interesting story. You know, I'm going to look forward to reading in the live chapter who's familiar with this. This is a very interesting passage. It's a passage where God demands the destruction, the utter, in, the men, the women, the children, the goats, the cows, the donkeys, the cats, the dogs. If it was with the Amalekites, God said, destroy it, at least according to the Old Testament. You know, sometimes Professor Penn gets himself out on a ledge and I'm forced to reveal some of my thinking, which I, you know, I try not to do. This is utter genocide demanded by God of Saul. Saul, you know, Saul didn't do it. He said, hey, we're going to kill the men. We'll kill the kids. We're taking the, they don't even put it in here. 
They took the woman too, okay? And actually, those religious Jews that reject Zionism and reject the nation of Israel, that accept the diaspora and the exile and the scattering of the Jews throughout the world, the believing Jews, not the Zionists. We've got two groups here now. We've got the believing Jews and the non-believing anti-Jews because they're anti-Jewish. They've rejected their tradition. The believing Jews, they attribute the Holocaust, the destruction of 6 million Jews and the exile to Saul not destroying the Amalekites. So what Netanyahu is saying is, remember Amalek. This time, we're going to get all of them. Whoa. Whoa. I want you to think about what's going on here. So I'm going to tell you a quick story. I've told it before, but it's worth telling. I've said I was raised in a religious Jewish tradition. And we have this thing called the Torah. The Torah, it's the five books of Moses. It's referred to as the Old Testament. It has many names. The Torah is what the religious Jews call it. The five books of Moses is what some scholars call it. And it's the Old Testament if you read the New Testament. And it's always amazing to me how many people say they're Christians. They never read the New Testament, let alone the Old Testament. So I'm going to say if you're professing faith in Christ, probably want to read these holy books. Just a, a suggestion. When I was about 13 years old, which is the demarcation when you become a, a man in, in the ancient tradition, you have what's called a bar mitzvah, and now you're responsible for yourself. I mean, now the clock is ticking. The game has started. I was given the opportunity to actually participate in the scribing or the writing of a, of a Torah. They're, they're scrolls, parchment scrolls. They're written by hand, calligraphy, beautiful. They're pieces of art. Some of them are hundreds of years old, and people read them every week, and they, they're scrolls. They're, you know, they, they're parchment. They wear out because you have to work through the scroll to get through the whole book, and it's set up on a calendrical basis. So from one date in the year to that date the next year, the entire book is read every year by the religious. And as you're reading that book, as you're reading that scroll, year after year, decade after decade, after a certain period of time, it wears out. So you got to make new ones. And This is the Word of God. This is what the tradition says Moses brought down from the mountain. The Torah, the, the covenant, the Word of God. And I practiced for a year my calligraphy to participate in the uh, creation of this new Torah. And uh, I did it, did a great job. And I looked at the rabbi afterwards and I said, Rabbi, you put such a great emphasis that every letter has to be exactly correct because it's the Word of God being transmitted from Sinai to the people. And you just let me, I was not Professor Penn in those days, I was David Penn, troublemaker. And I said, uh, you know, I know you were supervising me, but we actually made a new Torah here. I guess I could have written anything in there I wanted to. And boy, did I take an ass whipping on that one. That was violating the fundamental. Don't talk about 
any editing in the book. Something we all need to think about. Because the information war is powerful and has been going on from day one. That's why God sent us a comforter that lives in our hearts, that lives in our minds, that lives inside of us. Something to think about. I'm not going to go any farther into it, but I want everybody to project into what I'm trying to say about genocide and about our modern prime minister of Israel wrapping himself in the genocide of the Amalekites that was failed originally by Saul, who was the prime minister of the Jews at that time, that the religious say caused the exile and the Holocaust, and he's saying, let's not screw it up this time. Wow. Strap it on. It's going to get bumpy. Can you play this clip here with uh, Noval uh, Harari? Our commentary this morning takes us back to the Middle East. It's from Yuval Noah Harari, author of the best-selling book, Sapiens. Israel has just experienced its 9-11 moment. Entire communities have been slaughtered. My aunt and uncle are members of one of these communities, Kibbutz Be'eri. They hid in their house as terrorists were butchering their neighbors. I received word that they somehow survived. Many of my friends have just received the worst news of their lives. We know three things about this horrendous attack. First, Hamas aimed to kill civilians. Second, the victims were tortured and executed in the most gruesome ways the terrorists could imagine. Third, instead of hiding the atrocities, Hamas made sure they will be publicized. Why do such a thing? Because Hamas is waging a war on our souls. Like ISIS, Hamas uses unspeakable atrocities to terrify millions and to sow seeds of hatred and violence. Hamas is thereby committing a crime against humanity. It is not just killing humans. Hamas is trying to destroy our trust in humanity and thereby destroy our own humanity. A vicious cycle of violence now threatens to consume the entire region, ruining the lives of millions of Palestinians as well as Israelis. But the people of Israel are stronger than Hamas thinks. With the help of true friends like President Joe Biden, we will overcome the terror and hatred Hamas spreads, rebuild our country and our trust in humanity, and stay loyal to Israel's founding ideals. Democracy at home and peace abroad. Thank you. Uh, you know, I went out on a ledge there. I'm sure it's very triggering. I know I'm going to get some very intense feedback. Uh, I think we want to work on a relationship with God. And when I see a modern prime minister hearkening back to a genocide and calling about the people of Israel to create a genocide, which is what he's doing, and then I see Harari, Harari coming on here, and suddenly, and this guy is very anti-Netanyahu, Harari is the 
leader of the um, Fourth Industrial Revolution philosophers. He is a reviled figure from my perspective. Suddenly, hey, he's part of the Uni Party. He's no longer holding a position that's anti-Israeli, which he was doing just recently a few months ago, talking about the end of Israel, the end of the Israeli experiment, because Netanyahu and his religious group were taken over. And he was, well, right now, hey, hey, long as we got our friend in America so we can keep getting weapons, the Israeli people are going to overcome. Okay. And he talks about the ideals that were the founding of Israel. And I just thought I would share a few with you because, you know, they did have a um, Declaration of Independence in 1948. And I just want to uh, highlight a couple of the things that are in the Declaration. Like we have our Declaration of Independence, where certain unalienable rights are granted to me by a creator. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, in the State of Israel, their declaration, cultural values of national and universal significance were given to the world by the Jewish people through the eternal book of books. And after being forcibly exiled from their land, the people kept faith with it throughout their dispersion and never ceased to pray and hope for their return to it and for the restoration of their political freedom. That's in their Declaration of Independence, which is complete bullshit. There you go. you got to write that one down. Uh, the religious do not believe that the nation of Israel should be restored until such a time as the Messiah brings peace to the earth. The Zionists were a national political movement wrapping themselves in the cloth of faith. But let's go on, look at some of their other declarations. The right was recognized, the right of creating the state of Israel, was recognized in the Balfour Declaration on 2nd November 1917. That's why we're talking about the Balfour Declaration, because that's the bedrock of their legitimacy. And reaffirmed in the mandate of the League of Nations, which, in particular, gave international sanction to the historic connection between the Jewish people and Eretz Yisrael, Eretz means land, Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, and to the right of the Jewish people to rebuild its national home. The, the catastrophe which recently befell the Jewish people, the massacre of millions of Jews in Europe, was another clear demonstration of the urgency of solving the problem of its homelessness. So again, non-religious cultural Jews that were Marxists are using the connection, the historic connection, in their declaration between the Jewish people and the land of Israel that's biblically based, and these people were not biblical players, okay? They just weren't. So we have some fundamental contradictions here at the base of the whole project. By the blood of its soldiers and its war effort, the Israelis gained the right to be reckoned among the peoples who founded the United Nations. Well, that's true. We've talked about that in Free People Radio. You know, they fought for it and they won it. And what's happened is they have to fight for it continuously because their neighbors do not think that their presence 
is legitimate. President Erdogan in that protest said that the Israelis were occupiers and that their occupation must be ended. So the surrounding billion people, the Muslims in that area, see the Israel project, the Jewish, wrapped in the history of the Jewish people, they see it as a foreign ideology to be exterminated. So we got two groups bent on extermination, and they're having a good old-fashioned throwdown, aren't we? The state of Israel will be open for Jewish immigration and the ingathering of the exiles. Well, we're going to talk about that today. It will be based on freedom, justice, and peace as envisioned by the prophets of Israel. Okay, now we're going to editorialize here. It will ensure, this is the Marxist part, not the Jewish part. It will ensure the complete equality of social and political rights to all its inhabitants, irrespective of religion, race, or sex. It will guarantee freedom of religion, conscience, language, education, and culture. Sounds very liberal, doesn't it? Like the post-World War II democratic liberal order? Sounds just like it. In fact, that's what it is. It will safeguard the holy places of all religions, and it will be the it will be faithful to the principles of the Charter of the United Nations. Oh, it's all based on the post-World War II democratic liberal order. That's what it is. It's right in their declaration. The State of Israel is prepared to cooperate with the agencies and representatives of the United Nations. Isn't that interesting? Now listen to these. This is really cool. We appeal to the United Nations to assist the Jewish people in the building up of its state and to receive the state of Israel into the community of nations. We appeal in the very midst of the onslaught launched against us now for months to the Arab inhabitants of the state of Israel to preserve peace and participate in the upbuilding of the state on the basis of full and equal citizenship and due representation in all its provisional and permanent institutions. We extend our hand to all neighboring states and their peoples in an offer of peace and good neighborliness and appeal to them to establish bonds of cooperation and mutual help with the sovereign Jewish people settled in its own land. You know, everything's got a light and a dark, a yin and a yang. There's so much to be picked at in this Declaration of Independence. But also, there's so much to be recognized. Now, I know there's people that are going to say this was a scam. It wasn't sincere. And that may be true. But now we're starting to fortune tell what's in people's minds. Let's listen to the words that are coming out of their mouths. Or even better, what's being written down on their most significant documents. They're asking for the people that are the neighbors to befriend them and work with them. And I think that offer can still be extended. That's just me. That's why some of the people that are communicating with me are very mad at me because they don't believe that. So what? if you don't believe that there can be a, a peaceful outcome here, then what we're saying is there's going to be a genocide. One side's going to win and the other side's going to lose. And like the Amalekites, either all the Jews are going to be killed or all the Palestinians are going to be killed. And that seems to me to be a predicate for a very unhappy future.
Can you play this short on the Jewish expulsion from the Arab countries? People, for instance, talk a lot these days and, and for many years and for good reasons about the suffering of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who lost their homes in 1948. Right. Few people know that as a result of the 1948 war, also hundreds of thousands of Jews lost their homes in retaliation for the war uh, Jewish communities all over the Middle East, in Arab countries, in Egypt, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Syria, the largest group of people now living in Israel are Jews that were expelled as refugees as a result of the 1948 war. Now, does this justify what happened to the Palestinians? No. Does this justify the Israeli occupation and the mistreatment of Palestinians there? Absolutely not. And we shouldn't use historical injuries to justify more injuries. People. So, Harari is a historian. Why is he focused on this issue? Well, very interesting. He's saying there's unintended consequences of, of historical and, you know, action. The Palestinians had the Nakba, the catastrophe. They were voluntarily left their homes or they were run out through atrocities. It depends on what street corner you're standing on. Both things happened. But what Harari is focused on and why he's griping about this is Middle Eastern Jews in all the Arab countries were expelled and there was pogroms and killings. So the Jews that were living in Iraq in Iran, Yemen, Algeria, Morocco, Egypt, all over the Middle East. And these were a different group than these westernized, Marxist, socialist Jews that created the state of Israel. This was a different group. These were what's called Sephardic or Falasha Jews, different kind of Judaism, very faithful Jews. They had not given over to modernity. They lived like the days gone by. And they were expelled, and they went into Israel. They were open because in that declaration, Israel was open to any Jew that wanted to return there, the right of return. In other words, Professor Penn, if I wanted to move to Israel tomorrow, I, they'd let me right in. I'm a citizen overnight. All i got to do is prove I'm Jewish, which I can do. But why Harari's focused on this issue is these Middle Eastern Jews have outpopulated the Ashkenazi Jews that came from Europe. And there's been a power shift in Israel, as we've been discussing. That's what Harari's saying. Oh, there's unintended consequences. Look what happened. We expelled the Palestinians. The Arab countries expelled these non-European, traditional Sephardic Jews. They came into Israel. They populated the country, and they've outpopulated the Ashkenazi Jews, and they've taken power. And Netanyahu, who is Ashkenazi in his background, very astutely as a politician said, the power is shifting. He threw in with the religious, and these people are different. And that's why he's talking about the Old Testament and the Amalekites. And we need to understand how serious this is, how serious this can be, because these people 
are not thinking about you getting up tomorrow and getting in your car and driving to the mall and going shopping. They don't care about that. That's not important. Your and my futures do not matter to these people. They're living in a different kind of an intellectual framework and would be wise of us to understand who we're arming and what we're doing as the American people. Well, let's talk a little bit about something completely different because that's, I promised Sphinx Chat we were going to get off of this Israel thing as much as we could, and I want to stick with that promise. And I want to talk about the patriot economy. And I've said on many episodes, the patriot economy is the people and the businesses that are supporting truth media and want to conserve and maintain America, an America that is based on unalienable rights granted by a creator. And there are not that many businesses and business people that are willing to say that or work for that because it's not fashionable right now. Now, if all of a sudden there was a change of politics in this country, business people, most of them, not Professor Penn, you know, I'm driven by the world of ideas. Most of my competitors are driven by the world of cash. They don't care how they get the cash. They don't care who they get it from, as long as they get it and you don't. That's where they're coming from, and that's not the patriot economy. There are many, many businesses and business people that are dedicated to maintaining the United States of America as a free country, maintaining our economy so that it has an equitable, when I say equitable, I don't mean equity, I mean a fair opportunity for every American citizen to fulfill themselves based on their own willingness to create their own world. It's about creating our own world, the creativity being the spark that God gives us, our free will, to maintain the ability of each American to exercise their free will to create the world within which they want to live. That's one vision. The other vision is there's no God, there's no free will, and the government's going to tell us how to live, our technocratic elites. You know what? Get ready for this one. these people. These people that think they know better than me. I grew up with them because I come from that intellectual background in the university. These people do every disharmonious thing that I've done and you do. They're not special. They just know how to get to the top of the heap. They're Darwinists, and they've gotten to the top of the heap, and there's been a fight for the steering wheel who's running this country my entire life. And right now who's running it are people that are using climate change, social equity, and democracy as cudgels to beat individual American citizens into line. And if we don't agree with these people, oh, We're going to get canceled. Oh, verily, my say to you, we could get prosecuted. We could be killed. It's just a sign of the times. That's where we're listening. That's what we're seeing. So this patriot economy is very, very important. And uh, Free People Radio is part of the patriot economy. Unlike some of our competitors, and I know you know who I'm talking about, that are in it for the cash, 
we're in it to truth seek. Now, if God wants to bless us and we make some money at this, I'm not opposed to that idea, and I hope you're not either. And if God wants to bless you and suddenly you're making money, I'm not opposed to that. I'm not jealous of you. I appreciate that you're being blessed, and I hope it happens. But what we're really trying to do is stay on air and not go bust, not go bankrupt. So we need the support of Americans that care about this country, and so do all the businesses and all the business people and all the products and services that come from those businesses and business people, and we have free choice. We have free will. We can choose what we spend our money on. I want you to think about how powerful. I want to share with you how powerful this is. We have a $25 trillion economy. That means 300 million Americans or whatever the exact number is, and please correct me in the live chat, we don't even know how many people are here. But let's just say it's 300 million. They're making constant decisions every day about how to spend their money. That's a vote. Who you support and what you support with your economic decisions will determine, in large part, the future of our country, the destiny of our country. It's not just voting. It's not just being a delegate. You vote every day with how you spend your money. Your money is a represent, particularly when your money is a fiat currency. You know, it represents the full faith and credit of the American people. In other words, it's a scam. We're talking about a representation of my energy and your energy. How are we going to spend our energy? What are we going to support? I'll give you a small example. There's two basketball leagues that are professional, two professional basketball leagues. <clears throat> you know who they are. Who are you going to support? Who are you going to support? There's media, movies. What are you going to spend your money on? Are you going to support movies because they're stimulating and interesting, fun to watch, that the money flows uphill to people that really want to clip me out and clip you out? That's what their goal is? In other words, we give our money to people that want to harm us. Why would we do that? Why would we give our energy to people that want to harm us? And it's even deeper than that. They're taking our energy. It's not just that we're giving it. They're taking it. That's very skillful. And we have to have good boundaries and start to look at where we're spending our money and how we're spending our money. Now, all of these media organizations have to have a way to stay on air. InfoWars sells vitamins. War Room has uh, got all kinds of advertisers. Uh, most of the media companies, the John Fredericks Radio Network, they have advertisers. We're trying to self-finance, self-fund. So we've started this company, TireGet.com. And we're going to talk about the tire business for the next half hour because my knowledge of the tire business is quite developed. I've been in the tire business for a very long time. People say, well, Professor Penn, how could you be in the tire business? Rebellion. That's how. I rebelled. I did not go to medical school. I did not finish that training because I hated those people. 
I'm being very honest. You use the word hate. Hey, hey, you know, that's a strong word. I don't hate them now. But at the time, because I was being controlled and being pushed into something I didn't want to do because I wanted to be a musician. It's really interesting. Nobody in my family got along. You know, Jewish people, you get two Jewish people in a room, you got three opinions. Think about that one. So I got two sets of grandparents on one side, two sets of grandparents on the other side, or two grandparents on each side, and a mother and father. And none of these people got along with each other because I had one group that was religious, they were Jews, another group that was anti-Jews, boom, tornado. And I didn't understand until I was in my 50s what effect it had on me. But just like Harari blending in with Netanyahu and forming a uni party under pressure, when I told my family that I wanted to be a professional musician, oh, these people hated each other, but they all came together to push me to be a doctor because anti-Jew or Jew, hey, being a doctor was you know, a proud thing for the family. Unbelievable. So I just rebelled. I just said, you know, you all can go bite a hog in the ass. <laughs> Think about how that went around in the campfire. And I went into the tire business. Now I continued my education. I, you know, I, I, I never gave up those ideals that I got as a young person to study and to grow. And in my tire business, I got heavily involved in international trade from 1987 on. And it's really given me a lot of st- you know, intellectual challenge to be involved in, you know, international tire business, which has given me a lot of insight into how this country and how our politics and how our legal system works. Some would say too much so, in fact. But we started TireGet, which is an online e-commerce retail store. We're taking it to version 2.0 over the next few weeks. And I'm, this is not really an advertisement. I just want to share with you what you're doing. Because most of you, if not all of you, have to buy tires. It's taken me several years to get to this point. I've actually gotten you know, some of the real big names in the tire business to give me the right price. And when I say the right price, they control the price. When I say they, the powers that be, the people that make the tires control the price in the market. We're living in kind of a controlled era. They say you cannot sell it cheaper than this. Most of the people that are selling tires actually have to sell at a higher price. We actually have on the majority of our catalog the lowest possible price that we can sell tires to you for. And for no additional charge over that price, we will ship at TireGet.com the tires to your local tire dealer or your local service center and you'll pay TireGet 20 if you wish to, if you choose to, and thank you if you do, you can pay TireGet $25 per wheel for a mount, a balance, a valve stem, and disposal, which is the market price. So at the lowest possible price on the tire and the market price on the service, we can arrange your entire tire transaction in about 75% of the country. Now, if you're watching me from Montana, one day I'll get there. I'm not there today. But for about 75% of the population of the country, 80 major metro markets and the 120 miles around those markets, we will deliver tires at the lowest possible price where they can be installed at your local dealer. Now, your local dealer is going to say, why are you buying from TireGet? Why don't you buy from us? And I'm going to say to you, because you're supporting free people radio. 
And we need to buy a lot of tires because this opportunity will not last forever. So I'm going to say to you, thank you for supporting us. This is a way for us to self-fund. And I will be very honest with you. If this is a big hit and we're making money, we're just going to expand Free People Radio. We're just going to expand our political outreach because we want to participate in the healing of the United States of America. So by supporting this Free People Radio concept, which is going to be funded through self-generated revenue by going to the Free People Radio website and contributing, donating, participating there. And when you have to buy tires a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, go to tireget.com. That's T-I-R-E-G-E-T.com. Tireget.com. Customer services there. You might even get to meet me. I would be happy to work with you to get you what you need. And I know this is a big stretch. Tire guy on one side, Professor Penn on the other. But, you know, aren't all of us diverse in who we are? I have many selves. If I went through my entire catalog, people would say it's not even real, all the things I've done all my life. But if you want to grow as a human being and continue to study, and I urge you to do so, We'll all have many experiences, like my young uh, producer in here. He's going to have many experiences in his life. He's a smart kid. And we want to grow with you together and build this community. So thank you if you choose to buy your tires the next time from TireGet. And I also want to thank Susan and Lone Wolf and Gabriel, the people that are continuously going into the live chat, continuously leaving comments, clicking the like button, helping us build the engagement because the algorithms work against Free People Radio on YouTube and in, across the whole spectrum of media. For us to grow this message, please call me crazy, Professor Penn Podcast, Hebrews is coming up, the White House, uh, the last Renaissance, all the properties we're trying to bring forth. We need the audience to come forth and help us grow this engagement because we're not going to get any help from the so-called powers that be because our message is about the American people. It's about truth-seeking. We're not interested in BSing anybody. So we need your help. So I want to thank Susan and LW and Gabe and all the other people that are coming and communicating. Thank you for leaving comments. You know I try to comment back. Thank you for clicking the, sub- sub- the subscribe button and you know clicking the likes. And that helps us grow the engagement, and we need your help, and thank you very much. Now, I want to talk about the tire business because I'm trying to get you into it with me. It's a microcosm of everything you need to know about what's going on into our current politics, all the way up to these wars. You're going to say, how is the tire business related to war? Well, because it's war and trade, trade war. The real fight is about the money. And the biggest fight is about the split on these various products like tires, which is an international commodity. It's a part that goes on a car. And these issues, think about cars. Cars, my goodness gracious, for my generation, the the sign of being an adult was getting your first car. Now for the younger people, They're being told don't even own a car. It's bad for the earth. You know, ride share. Get an EV. 
You know, we just had a very big strike in the U.S. auto industry, and the workers got a 25% wage increase, which cars are going to go up in price. You know, they're putting these people out of the business. They don't even know what they're doing. Some of this stuff is so obvious to me. If all of a sudden cars go up in price, less people can buy cars, and all these people that are working in the auto industry lose their jobs. If we convert to electric vehicles completely, which is the goal of this administration, I mean, 40% of the workers lose their jobs because they're the ones building the combustion engines. The BS here is so deep, we could talk about it. We could stay up here. We could go four hours on this. Let's just try to do another half hour and talk about the tire business, which is the center of a trade war. When I went into the tire business, which was in the 70s, there was no imported tires. 100% of the tires consumed in the United States of America were produced in the United States of America. Think of that. 1970s, 100% domestic production for domestic consumption. That would be called America First. But in 1972, President Nixon, under the stewardship of Henry Kissinger, took us down a globalist path by removing the dollar from a link to the gold standard, undoing the Bretton Woods agreements, and starting us into an internationalist architecture linking the dollar, a piece of paper, to petroleum, it's called the petrodollar. And from that moment forth, everything changed. Kissinger went and met with Mao. China was open for the first time, and the United States started to do business and develop China. There was this idea of globalism, globalism. And there were those who knew from the start what the end point was supposed to be, which was global governance. And that's not me making it up because they wrote it down. Just like in that Israeli Declaration of Independence or our Declaration of Independence, you don't have to wonder what people were thinking. They wrote it down. Now, again, we can say they weren't being honest what they wrote down. And that's fortune-telling because I don't know what's in your mind. I can only go on by what you tell me. Once I start making up what I think you mean, oh, we're going off into cognitive distortion land. And when I don't understand what you mean, I might say, could you please say that to me again so I'm sure I understand what you're saying? Or here's another good one. Please let me say back to you what I think I heard. If you do that, when I do that in my personal life with Professor Penn's personal relationship, could I just please say back to you what I think I heard and clarify so we have understanding amongst ourselves? If I don't just go off and make up my own story, I actually try to understand what my counterparty is saying to me. If we just just took the time to do that, we'd have a lot more clarity. Like me listening to Benjamin Netanyahu talk about the, the Amalek and going back and reading about it and sharing it with you. Because if we don't know what he means, if we're not looking up the source material, we just miss it. And then we're victims of history instead of stewards of our own lives. And what we want to be is stewards of our own lives and our own community and not be victims of assholes.
Now, this tire business has gotten more and more internationalized over the course of my tire business career. And I've made the statement that I'm a reformed globalist, and I am. I've, I've said I've been to China over 100 times, maybe close to 200 times. Matter of fact, I was, I was uh, taking a walk yesterday, and I got a call, and I'm not supposed to say this stuff, but, you know, hey, Professor Penn's got a lot of, a lot of things going on and a lot of history. I got a call from a very senior person in the Chinese government that wanted to talk to me, and I talked to him. Conversation was not in English. There's another surprise for you. Anyhow, it was about the future of trade relations. That call was about the future of the trade relations between the governments, the governments, because they know that I am interested in American self-sufficiency, and I urge the Chinese to open their factories here so that American people can work and taxes are paid here because we are a free and open society and we want to encourage foreign direct investment in the United States. We don't want to encourage our business people in our hedge funds and our Wall Street to go invest in other countries for low-cost labor, which is what has been going on since the 70s, a huge outflow of American capital around the world undermining American workers and American democracy for this idea of globalism, kind of socialism on an international basis. Let's spread the cash out. Hey, it's a beautiful idea. But when I realized it was leading to poverty and to depravity within my own people, I had to say, hey, this is stupid because we're hurting our own country. We're hurting our own brothers and sisters, and this I cannot support. So I encourage the Chinese to open their production here so American people governed by American rule of law can be employed and have families and have children and we can educate our children instead of draining all the money out of this country and it's being drained out in two ways. That debt, there's another bleep for you, you better mark that one down. That's a scam. We should not be in debt, we should be in surplus. When I say should, I don't like should statements. We are in debt and surplus is an opportunity and a goal. That's one way we're getting made poor and dependent. The other way is the outflow of capital, which benefits a handful of people to the detriment of the American people, including Professor Penn, because I've gotten off of the globalist freight train. But the tire business is very contentious. It's a car part, and it's an important part because it wears out Every two, three, four years, that's why we have Tiregate, where there are a lot of American-made tires featuring American-made tires, aggrandizing and supporting American workers. It's very important to me to do this. So the tire business developed very organically, and there was a lot of uh, effort to offshore production and then people like Professor Penn started to import tires. First, it was from Japan. This goes back into the 70s. The first big 
source of tires that came into this country from outside was the Japanese, which was a Democrat Party invention. The first big brand was Bridgestone. You might know that name. I remember trying to sell Bridgestone tires in the 70s, and people would say, where is it made? And I'd say, Japan. And I remember frequently the buyer would say, hey, I fought those people. I'm not buying those tires. Interesting. So part of the trade was to heal the rift between the United States and Japan, which, you know, there's two sides to everything. That was not a bad idea. Then the business moved to Korea. And there's a big business of Korean tires being produced in Korea and shipped into the United States, you know, at a lower cost of labor than the United States. But now Japan has a very similar kind of economy to the United States, so they've opened up their factories in the United States. In fact, Bridgestone bought Firestone. Korea, very similar to the United States in the economy. They're building their tires here in the United States. So the business went to China, where that's where the low-cost tires are being built. And China enjoys probably, Chinese companies enjoy probably 30 to 40% of the U.S. market share. It's giant. We do not build the tires here in this country that are consumed here by American consumers. We're way under 50%. So think about what would happen if trade was interrupted. You would have no tires to drive to work. Think about how vulnerable we are, and that's tires. That's why I want to talk about the tire business. It's a microcosm of the entire vulnerability that globalism has created through our entire supply chain on all the products that you and I buy every day. So the Chinese grew and grew. I was in China in 1993. What is that? It's 30 years ago. That's when I started selling tires that were manufactured in China. And, you know, when I started, they weren't here. They had zero market share. And very quickly, it grew tremendously. I mean, they, when I say they, the Chinese figured out how to get in the tire business, and they wanted to be in the tire business, and they organized themselves. And I want to tell you, you want to hate them, fine. They did a sensational job, sensational, of organizing their tire business. They're now the largest producer of tires in the world by far. And it grew and grew. And we have this union here in the United States called the United Steel Workers Union. And they are the people that are in the tire factories here in the United States, and they started to object to their jobs and their wages being undermined by the importation of tires produced in China. And the USW is a very key constituent of the Democrat Party. So when President Obama was elected in 2008, in 2009 when he was, you know, inaugurated, The first thing that happened, the first big thing he did was he imposed what was called a Section 421, which was an emergency tax on consumer tires produced in China. That was imposed on September 11th, 2009. I remember it like it was yesterday. They did it on a Friday night at 11 p.m. It's called taking out the garbage. They really didn't want to publicize this because, you know, Obama was a globalist, but he had a cater to his USW constituency, and they imposed duties 
and that raised the price of tires, and that made the USW happy for a minute. The Chinese adjusted, and they moved along, and that temporary measure expired. So on August 10th, 2015, there was what was called the imposition of anti-dumping duties. These are very onerous, and that really put a kink in the Chinese tire business as it pertained to shipping tires to the United States. So what did the Chinese do? They went down into Thailand, and they reproduced their Chinese production in the country of Thailand. So on the, uh, let's see here, on the 19th of July, 2021, under President Trump, duties were imposed on Chinese companies producing tires in Thailand that were shipped to the United States. What I'm showing you here is the history of a trade war. Let's look at look at it from a media perspective. Uh, can you put on this uh, Trump tariff, China? Trade talks between the U.S. and China have come to an end with no deal, and the uncertainty has sent stocks swinging back and forth all day. The Chinese delegation left today. President Trump says the talks will continue in the future, but the Treasury Secretary says they have nothing scheduled as of now. Overnight, the U.S. raised tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese-made goods from 10% to 25%. If no deal can be made, President Trump says he is prepared to put a 25% tariff on another three $325 billion worth of Chinese-made goods. That would impact everything China ships to the United States. China says it will respond and higher tariffs on U.S.-made goods are likely. Thank you. Trade war, war and trade. Let's see what happened in China relative to what President Trump did. Play this next one. China alternative strategies, please. Tires being made in large quantities in a small town tucked away in East China's Shandong province. This factory alone produced nearly 27 million tires in the first half of 2018, witnessing a slight increase. Asian countries had the highest dollar worth of rubber tire exports last year, about 45% of global export sales. That's nearly 34 billion US dollars, and China ranked first. The U.S. is China's largest recipient of tires, accounting for nearly half of China's total tire exports. But current tariffs are believed to be causing havoc throughout the global tire industry. China is the largest tire manufacturer globally. It is also the largest tire exporter. When the U.S. levies tariffs on China's tires, as well as imposes other technical barriers, the large volume of tire exports from China will flow into other markets, which will spur even stronger competition in other tire markets. The U.S. tariffs on Chinese tires are considered an opportunity for manufacturers based in Thailand, as tires made in Thailand are subject to the same duties which China faces. We have taken some preemptive measures to cope with the trade frictions, including the impact generated from trade barriers. Now our plant in Thailand can meet the demands of the U.S. market. However, experts say U.S. tariffs won't help the U.S. decrease the trade deficit. The U.S. is not strong in manufacturing. In the short term, its imports from China will decrease, but in the long run, it won't help narrow the trade deficit. 
The tariffs on China's Thai exports to the United States are not new. In 2009, when the tariffs were first imposed, many companies struggled. But ever since then, they have rebounded slightly. And some Chinese companies like this one have built plants overseas in Asia or in Europe with lower costs to minimize the impact of the trade friction. Li Jianhua, CGTN, Yantai, Shandong Province. And let's play this next one about uh, Yongtai going bankrupt, please. Shandong Yongtai Group Company, the 10th largest maker of tires in China, declared bankruptcy earlier this month, at least partly because of pressure from the U.S.-China trade war. On March 2, the Dongying City Intermediate People's Court in Shandong Province received the company's bankruptcy filing. The company, which was established in 1996, was ranked 32nd in 2021 on U.S. Magazine Tire Business is list of the world's most powerful tire companies. At its peak, the company had more than 5,000 employees. It's the biggest bankruptcy case in China's tire industry, the trade publication China Tire Dealer reported on March 18. The U.S. Department of Commerce has levied anti-dumping and countervailing duties on Chinese tire imports since at least 2008, accusing tire makers of selling goods in the United States at less than fair value, and saying the Beijing regime provides companies with subsidies that undermine competition. The Yongtai Group bankruptcy was called. So what I'm I'm showing here is in a trade war, or war in trade. Regular citizens in both countries who are seeking employment are harmed. It's a zero sum game, and I'm not saying that can change. I'm an American citizen. I believe in the United States of America. I want to manufacture our products here so that my people, the people that I love, that I'm working for, can have good lives. And we had this globalist architecture that exported our jobs, exported our capital. Globalism leads to socialism. It is socialist. It's spreading out the money around the world, and it, has, it is draining out the wealth and the upward mobility of the American people. And that was the intention of the Kissingers and the Brzezinski's and the people that created the globalist architecture. What they believed was, well, there's many things to go to read what they believed. They believed a lot of stuff, like depopulating the planet. But one of the things they believed was that war would be less likely if everybody was poor. Great. Thanks a lot, guys. This trade war is continuing. Could you just play this piece, this 36-second piece on uh, Cooper and the USW? It greatly concerns me of Senator Lincoln's recent ads where she's taking credit for helping save the Cooper Tire Rubber Company plant in Texarkana, Arkansas and 1,700 jobs, when indeed the members of that plant took $31 million worth of concessions to keep that plant open. And it's Senator Lincoln's trade record and her votes on NAFTA and CAFTA that actually have cost us thousands of jobs throughout the state as well as hundreds of thousands of million jobs across this country. Well, there it is. What an articulate uh, man understands the issues completely. He's talking about a state senator or, a, or a, a, excuse me, a, a, a national, you know, in our Congress, a senator who took votes and he's saying, now we've given up 31 million bucks to keep this plant open, and Senator, 
your votes for international trade is breaking us. And that's just a guy. He's just a guy. And nobody cared about this guy. And why Trump became so powerful is because he understood this thinking and the yearning of these people. And the America First movement is about Americans, not about the globe. And I have to say, I do not want to be a citizen of the world for two reasons. One, they're going to make me poor. And two, I don't want a bunch of technocrats in Brussels telling me how to brush my teeth. These people suck. We need to have our governance close to our neighborhoods. Now, we're in a moment, and I'm going to try to wrap it up as quickly as I can, where President Biden finds himself between a rock in a hard place. This trade war is continuing. We're going to watch this because it's going to be very politically informative. It is my belief that the Democrat Party really doesn't care about its traditional union base anymore. It's got a new constituency of young people, you know, globalism, climate change people, social equity people, democracy people, which really means a woman's right to choose. They don't care about the workers anymore. And these workers are pissed, and they know it. So recently, President Biden lowered the tax that President Trump had imposed very significantly on Chinese company tires produced in Thailand and imported into the United States. They already have a 35% market share. And what President Biden is saying, hey, go ahead, proceed. And, you know, with inflation, people can't even afford American-made products. So, of course, they have to reach for the lowest-cost product. And what does this do? It puts people out of work. So last week, Michelin, after seeing President Biden lower that tax, Michelin came out and said they were going to close their big factory in Ardmore, Oklahoma, and put 1,400 USW out of work. You want to talk about political drama. We're going to stay on this. Because if President Biden proceeds with lowering this tax, and this plan actually closes, we're going to have a big change in politics here in this country because workers are going to start deserting the Democrat Party in droves because they are going to realize, and these workers all over the country know this, they know, talking about industrial workers, people that make things, they know that the Democrat Party has abandoned them and they're going to defect. So we're going to watch this case. Let's just play this 47 seconds on Michelin closes Ardmore. 1,400 Oklahomans will lose their jobs after Michelin announced plans to wind down tire production at its Ardmore industrial site. Michelin says they're doing this because the site is not equipped to deliver tires at a low enough cost. They said that they will be done making tires in Ardmore by the end of 2025. And tonight we are hearing from several lawmakers about this, including Oklahoma U.S. Senator Mark Wayne Mullen. He says that he has been in immediate contact with Ardmore officials at Ardmore Chamber of Commerce and is ready to help anyone impacted by the closure. Mullen said that his team will soon be on the ground to meet with local officials there to connect with workers as well as connect them with federal employment resources and also discuss economic impact and recovery. Thank you. You think uh, Senator Mark Wayne Mullen might be a globalist? 
He doesn't say, hey, we're going to get together and we're going to raise the tax and keep these jobs when Michelin says they can't get the price right. No, he didn't say that. He said, we're going to have some federal you know, programs to retrain you, I don't know, maybe to work at Starbucks. So, you know, this is really potent stuff. And I want to leave you with this because as Harari was talking about, that the, it's going to be a stretch, but stay with me. When Harari was talking about the expulsion of the Palestinians, led to the, a counterweight, the expulsion of the Jews from all those Arab countries, and they came into Israel, not Ashkenazi Jews, not Jews from Europe, but Middle Eastern Jews, and those Jews, those Middle Eastern Jews, have changed the politics of Israel. They've changed it. Now, we have two big changes in the Democrat Party. The party is forsaking its traditional union base, and the issue of Israel is splitting the Democrat Party into a pro-Islamist, pro-Palestinian group, in a traditional pro-Israel group. The Democrat Party is fracturing. It's fracturing, and when things break, what we need to do is come together as the American people and take all these disgruntled workers and all these folks into the America movement and change the politics in the United States of America to make our politics about the American people about the well-being of the American people, about the sanctity of our borders, and the sanctity of our political formation. And on that note, I want to wish you a great weekend. I look forward to seeing you. I I have a rumor that I'm going to be appearing with Royce Friday night, so thank you for being here on Thursday night. Thank you for spreading out the content so we can grow the community. And there's a rumor that I'm going to be on Please Call Me Crazy Friday night, and I hear Royce walking in the studio behind me, so I'm looking forward to recording with him today. I want to wish you all well. Rest, recover, and stay in the fight. Thank you very much.